0: Kara Robinson is a lawyer whose writing has appeared in the popular press and in scholarly journals. Her educational path uh, has taken her to Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford Law School, where she was also a visiting scholar. A former law clerk at the Supreme Court, she acted as legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague and she currently serves as a trustee of the National Humanities Center. She joins us today to discuss her first book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, just published this month, uh, based on two decades of research and recently unearthed evidence. The New York Times has called the book an enthralling new look at the mystery in the Fall River Herald Press has described it as deliciously detailed. So please join me in welcoming Kara Robinson.
1: First of all, thank you all for coming. Um, One works on these things for so long in private that it's always nice to know that um, you haven't been involved in some kind of intellectual Stockholm Syndrome, and that there might actually be people who would be interested in the topic after you're done with it. So I'm gonna talk a little bit today about the trial of Lizzie Borden, um, and then at the end we'll have time for questions, and I'm happy to talk about any aspect of the case if something else about it grabs you. Um, And just by way of introduction, a little bit of background. On August 4th, 1892, an elderly couple Andrew and Abby Borden were, in the words of their local Fall River, Massachusetts paper, hacked to pieces in their home. It soon became apparent that the only person with both motive and opportunity was Andrew Borden's younger daughter, Lizzie. Her arrest turned a local homicide case into international front page news. The trial of Lizzie Borden, according to the Providence Journal, would be one of the greatest murder trials in the world's history. The New York world more modestly declared uh, that it was the trial of the most extraordinary criminal case in the history of New England. The Boston Globe proclaimed, "'It will be impossible to exaggerate the interest felt and manifested by intelligent readers throughout the country in the outcome of this trial of a comparatively young woman for the murder of her father and stepmother. The Globe estimated that, among its own readership, there are at this moment 100,000 persons devoting what they are pleased to call their minds to a hopeless analysis of this tremendous case. To satisfy this demand, so many correspondents and reporters converged on New Bedford, the site of the trial, that the New Bedford Evening Standard questioned whether a more distinguished collection of newspaper writers were ever detailed to cover a murder trial. Well-known columnists arrived with entourages in tow and took up conspicuous seats in the courtroom. Joe Howard Jr., then the highest paid correspondent of his day, um, who covered the trial for the Boston Globe and the New York Recorder, scanned the crowd for pretty faces, complained about the ramshackle mill teams passing on the busy thoroughfare outside the courthouse, and in slow moments reported on the activities of the cow of the day, <laughs> the bovine commentator on the proceedings audible from across the street. Reporters relentlessly scrutinized the defendant, Lizzie Borton, for signs of guilt or innocence and relayed her reactions to, to witnesses at the trial to their larger audience eager for any details. Everyone, rich and poor, suffragists and conservatives, legal scholars and laypeople, had an opinion about the proceedings. But many of the most enthusiastic pundits would be the private citizens eager to attend the trial. In the first week, over one third of the audience were women Uh, calico mixed with silk, as one reporter put it, so all classes were represented, uh, and their numbers increased steadily until the end of the trial. Throngs of thrill-seekers forced the public to set up temporary fences to keep the multitudes from overflowing the chamber. Interest remained at a fever pitch for the two and a half weeks of the trial. On the last day, citizens laid siege to the courthouse. The Globe reported that, over an hour before the time of opening, the doors were besieged by people, mostly ladies in holiday attire, all hoping for seats. But there were too few of them for accommodation for a tenth of the claimants. So the audience flowed out into the anterooms, the stairways, and the halls. Outside, the approach to the courthouse resembled a human wall as people vainly attempted to secure admittance all wished to be present for what one newspaper termed the last scene in the great Borden trial. Like much of the country in 1893, our eyes naturally turn to the jury box. We want the assignment of guilt or innocence. Would the 12 good men and true of Bristol County send Lizzie Borden to the gallows? But the jury's verdict, while it might seem to mark the end of the story, should not mark the end of our analysis. We seize upon this moment of decision because it seems to demonstrate in the starkest possible way what stories a culture expects to hear about crimes and their resolutions. The opposing legal narratives, each designed to convince a jury selected to represent society at large tells us a great deal about a culture's most deeply held assumptions and its greatest anxieties. In the Borden case, the prosecution pointed to an overwhelming array of circumstantial evidence to prove that only Lizzie Borden could have committed the murders. The defense, on the other hand, simply insisted that a respectable lady could not possibly have killed her own father. While the prosecution meticulously unfolded evidence designed to show that the unthinkable did indeed happen, the defense sought to reassure the jury of its impossibility. Within the defense's sentimental narrative, replete with inordinate father-daughter tenderness and mustachioed villains in policeman's blue, Lizzie Borden personified feminine innocence in the unlikely guise of a phlegmatic spinster. Many observers preferred to believe, despite medical evidence to the contrary, that a woman like Lizzie Borden was incapable of hacking her father and stepmother to death. But before we proceed to the verdict, I'd like to examine the trial as a process, a process that is as steeped in culture as the eventual outcome. So I'd like to turn your attention away from the spectacle. of the moment of jury decision uh, and focus instead on uh, two controversial rulings on evidence in the trial. These two rulings excluded Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony and her attempt to buy poison a few days before the murders of her father and stepmother. Immediately after the trial, legal commentators, most notably Charles Davis, a well-regarded Massachusetts judge. And John Wigmore, the most famous evidence scholar of his day, soon to take up the deanship at Northwestern uh, Law School and and write the definitive work on evidence law, uh, criticized these rulings as inconsistent with the law as it stood. So one could argue that the rulings in the Borden trial provide a clear example of the way in which cultural and social factors Deform legal precedent, creating anomalous results and undermining the perceived impartiality of the law. Indeed, subsequent commentators have taken the rulings as proof of the judge's bias in favor of a daughter of a respected Fall River citizen. That Lizzie Borden's lead counsel, the former governor of Massachusetts, George Robinson, had actually appointed one of the trials trial judges to the bench only seems to lend weight to the suspicion that the judges bent the rules in f- favor of the defense. But today, I want to suggest that this way of thinking misses a larger point. The judges could not have been immune to deeply held beliefs about criminality, femininity, and familial ties, beliefs threatened, by an apparently respectable upper middle class ax murderous parasite. That the jurors as representatives of their New England communities might have been unwilling to accept evidence of her guilt seems understandable, even forgivable. Yet legal professionals and the broader public like to assume that judges somehow stand outside the cultural fray. And this assumption is explicitly written into the law. Unlike jurors who must be insulated from evidence calculated to inflame passion or prejudice, judges are thought to be able to negotiate around these traps to consider, for example, evidence about a defendant's character or bad acts for one purpose and ignore its admitted persuasiveness in another context. But despite their specialized training, judges cannot escape their culture. When weighing the evidence, the judges attempted to map common law precedent onto the actions of the discreetly veiled woman before them, the sort of defendant that was emphatically not represented in the prior case law. In applying the law to this particular defendant, the judges had to develop their decisions within Uh, rather than from above, uh, a dense web of assumptions and prejudices. In other words, it was not that the judges actively and consciously showed favoritism to Lizzie Borden because of her class and gender, but rather that these decisions inevitably took account of the assumptions of what an upper-middle-class woman like Lizzie Borden was capable of. The arguments and decisions about admissibility, therefore, reveal the important way in which seemingly abstract legal rules and neutral procedures, no less than the more vivid moments of jury decisions, both reflect and shape their cultural context. First, the inquest. Uh, The task of prosecuting what all agreed was an incredible crime fell to the district attorney for Southern Massachusetts, a man named Jose Knowlton, who later went on to become attorney general of the state. He was joined by a younger lawyer, District Attorney William Moody, uh, who was then under 40, but had as good a reputation as any public prosecutor in the state. And he uh, would go on to even greater heights, um, eventually serving on the Supreme Court of the United States. A gifted lawyer at home in the nuances of legal doctrine, Moody handled the arguments about evidence. Both lawyers believe that their best hope of convicting Lizzie Borden lay in her own confused and contradictory account of her whereabouts during the murders. At the coroner's inquest that preceded her trial, Knowlton established a chronology that seemed to make Lizzie the only possible killer, calling a succession of witnesses, he proved that two of the four surviving members of the Borden household were in the clear. Emma, Andrew's older daughter, Lizzie's older sister, by about uh, 10 years, was staying with friends in Fairhaven, about 35 miles away. And John Morse, the brother of Andrew Borden's first wife, so the biological uncle of both Borden daughters, had arrived for a visit with the family the night before, which had been considered suspicious. Uh, But he had left early that morning to see his other relatives in a different part of town. So it seemed that only two people had remained in the house with Mr. and Mrs. Borden, Bridget Sullivan, the Irish domestic servant, and Lizzie Borden. Knowlton then spent the remainder of the inquest establishing Lizzie's likely guilt and Bridget's likely innocence. We know that Andrew Borden left the house at 9.15 to attend to his business downtown. Abby Borden then asked Bridget Sullivan to wash the outside windows. By 9.30, Abby Borden went up to the guest room and was struck down by 19 blows. Less than the fabled 40 wax, but plenty to get the job done. A little over an hour and a half later, or rather a little over an hour later, At 1045, Andrew Borden returned home, but stood on the doorstep fumbling with the lock, unaware that the door had been bolted from the inside. In her attempt to let Mr. Borden in, Bridget struggled with the lock and uttered an exclamation, which evoked laughter from Lizzie Borden, who was descending the front stairs, directly opposite the open door of the guest bedroom containing her stepmother's body. Lizzie told her father that Abby had gone out after receiving a note. Andrew then uh, settled down on the sofa in the sitting room for a nap. Sometime between 10.45 and five, this nap became his final slumber. In Knowlton's view, Borden's own account of her activities that day cleared Bridget Sullivan of suspicion And I I should note that Bridget Sullivan was spotted outside washing the windows when Abby was murdered. Um, And uh, when Bridget finished that chore, Lizzie had urged her to take advantage of a special sale at a downtown store. Um, But at the time that Andrew was killed, the exhausted maid was instead napping in her attic room. While Lizzie seemed to provide Bridget with an alibi, she had none of her own. Other details of her story strained credulity. First, her claim not to have heard any noise when her stepmother died was questioned. A murder murder trial is no place for tact and Knowlton indelicately but convincingly observed that the fall of the 200 pound Abby Borden was likely to have made a considerable FUD. Lizzie's claim that Abby had received a note and gone out also raised eyebrows. No note was found, and despite advertised rewards, subsequent investigation failed to disclose or discover the author of the mystery note. Knowlton also believed that Lizzie Borden's account of her actions after discovering her father's body suggested subterfuge. When he pressed her about her whereabouts when her father was killed, Lizzie testified that During the critical period, she had been in the barn looking for a fishing sinker, a a weight for a, a fishing line, and eating pears for about 20 minutes. Her claim to have discovered her father's body, but not to have noticed her stepmother's body was also highly suspicious. After finding her father dead in the house, Lizzie Borden told Bridget Sullivan that her father had been killed and sent her first for the neighboring Dr. Bowen, the family doctor who lived across the street. Um, He was not at home uh, and she then uh, sent Bridget Sullivan to find um, a family friend named Alice Russell. In the interim, Adelaide Churchill, another neighbor, spotted Lizzie Borden standing in the doorway and asked her what was wrong. I I grew up with um, reruns of Bewitched and so I always think of Mrs. Churchill as the Gladys Kravitz of the neighborhood. When Lizzie told her that her father had been killed, she hurried to her side um, and asked about Mrs. Borden. Lizzie suddenly seemed to remember that perhaps she had heard her stepmother returned and uh, suggested that uh, she and Bridget, Mrs. Churchill and Bridget, go up and look for her. Um, They discovered the body of Abby Borden, apparently visible from the front landing, um, which was where Lizzie um, had walked down less than an hour before. Knowlton's examination cast doubt on where Lizzie was, on the existence of the note she claimed her stepmother received, and on her failure to notice her stepmother's corpse in the guest room that she had also burned a dress allegedly worn on the day of the murders seemed to confirm not only her guilt, but her consciousness of that guilt. As Wigmore would later note, the conduct of the accused after the killing was such that no conceivable hypothesis except that of guilt will explain the inconsistencies and the improbabilities that were asserted by her. Knowlton's colleague, Moody, laid out the prosecution's argument for admitting Borden's inquest testimony. From cases he called from numerous jurisdictions, he derived a clear rule. Declarations voluntarily given, no matter where or under what circumstances, are competent. Declarations obtained by compulsion are never competent. According to the prosecution, Lizzie Borden voluntarily testified at the inquest. Therefore, her statement should be admitted into evidence. Moody observed that the state was required to hold an inquest about deaths in suspicious circumstances. Borden was not under arrest or charged with the murders at the time of the inquest, and she consulted with her attorney before testifying. If Borden wanted to protect herself against the subsequent use of her statements, Moody argued, she should have claimed her privilege against self-incrimination as codified in the Massachusetts Constitution. The defense, needless to say, saw Lizzie's inquest testimony in a different light. According to former Governor Robinson, Borden was under constructive arrest as much in custody as if an arrest warrant had actually been served. He discovered that, in fact, Fall River's chief of police had actually carried an unserved warrant in his pocket during the inquest. (laughs) And Robinson built upon that small fact to create a particular ambiance. Unlike Moody, who immediately launched into the fine points of doctrine, Robinson conjured up an atmosphere of menace in which crowds of men in authority circle a defenseless young woman. He described the police surveillance of the house, the subpoena to appear at the inquest, and the denial of Lizzie's request for representation at the inquest. She alone, a woman, unguided by counsel, confronted with the district attorney, watched by the city marshal, at all times surrounded by the police. That a warrant had been drawn up before her testimony established that those authorities all thought Lizzie Borden was guilty. According to Robinson, the inquest was simply set up to extort from the defendant something that could be used against her. He thundered, if that is freedom, God save the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Throughout the trial, Robinson depicted Lizzie Borden as the personification of beleaguered innocence and the heroine of a Victorian melodrama. He described the police investigation and prosecution of Borden as equal parts sexualized harassment and authoritarian persecution. Playing on this theme, he discussed the Fall River officers' badgering of Lizzie Borden in her own boudoir, remarking, and there they were, up in this young woman's room in the afternoon, attended with other officers, plying her with all sorts of questions in a pretty direct and peremptory way. Robinson sexualized the police interrogation so that it resembled at the very least something highly improper, and at worst, a scene of seduction or even violence. Appropriately, he then called on the judges and ultimately the jurors to protect Borden's honor. In the voice of outraged manhood, he pointedly inquired, is that a way for an officer of the law to deal with a woman in her own house? What would you do with a man that got into your house and was talking to your wife or your daughter in that way? In Robinson's account, the police and the prosecuting attorneys might might as well have been stationed outside her bedroom door, an official mob swirling around a young woman, blocking her escape like cats playing with their prey. How, he wondered, could statements made under those conditions possibly be voluntary? It is intriguing to me that uh, Robinson failed to exploit the powerful rationale of the case law on this point the psychological insight that involuntary statements are often unreliable as an earlier case explained the mind confused and agitated by the apprehension of danger cannot reason with coolness and it resorts to falsehood when the truth would be safer and is hurried into acknowledgments which the facts do not warrant but Robinson did not need to run the risk of suggesting that Borden might have lied because she felt endangered. Instead, he kept the judges focused on the assumption that as a woman, Borden was inherently vulnerable to confusion. Grief stricken at the violent death of her father, unsettled by unjust suspicion, and incapacitated by the requisite prescription of morphine, a woman like Lizzie Borden could not testify clearly. And the public and the press seemed to largely agree. As the columnist Joe Howard, a Borden partisan from the outset put it, pushed, examined, cross-questioned, surrounded by hostile officials, she was badgered and confused to such an extent that during those long, tedious three days of inquisition, she contradicted herself again and again. In his view, Borden's inconsistent testimony was proof that she was a woman not proof that she was a murderer. Robinson's portrayal of the Fall River authorities in a nefarious masculine conspiracy to compel Borden's testimony persuaded the judges. Though Borden had not in fact been arrested, she was, in their words, as effectually in custody as if the formal precept had been served. Um, Although they noted that the mere fact of suspicion doesn't automatically make a defendant's statements under oath involuntary. They implied that the investigators strategically held off serving the arrest warrant and issued a firm rebuke. The common law regards substance more than form. Although public opinion mostly commended the judge's ruling, members of the legal profession did not. Judge Davis and Dean Wigmore held their tongues until the trial was over but later criticized the exclusion of Borden's inquest testimony. Both acknowledged that the question had not been authoritatively decided in Massachusetts, but concluded that common sense dictated a contrary result. Robinson's theatrics muted by time. Wigmore pointedly inquired, is there any lawyer in these United States who has a scintilla of doubt, not merely that her counsel fully informed the accused on her rights, And yet, the ruling of the court allowed them to blow hot and cold, to go on the stand when there was something to gain, and to remain silent when the testimony proved dangerous to use. Her disastrous performance at the inquest safely beyond the reach of the jury, Lizzie Borden never again took the stand. She was far more effective as a mute tragedian than as a witness. Despite her notorious coldness, remarked on by many reporters, She displayed strategic emotion at the time of the trial, hiding her face in her fan during especially gruesome medical testimony and feigning, as if on cue, when the prosecutor prosecutor whispered, bring in the skulls. Perhaps having gambled on Lizzie Borden's persuasive power At the inquest, the defense simply did not care to risk another debacle. After all, most of the prosecution's evidence of discord in the Borden household came directly from Lizzie Borden's frankly expressed dislike of her stepmother. And given the circumstances, the less said on that subject, the better. The second key exclusion of evidence also sheds light on the role that cultural notions of female conduct played in the trial process. The prosecution sought to offer testimony that on the day before the murders, Lizzie Borden had attempted to buy prussic acid. Prussic acid is a 2% dilution of hydrocyanic acid and is deadly in a very tiny dose. Oddly enough, the savagery of the murders constituted the prosecution's greatest stumbling block. As the defense repeatedly observed, women, particularly upper middle class, native born white women, Uh, like Borden were physically and psychologically incapable of such brutality. The notion that an otherwise respectable daughter would suddenly pick up a hatchet and hack her father and stepmother to death required an explanation to match the story's inherent improbability. What would drive a proper 19th century woman to transcend the limits of her sex in such a violent way If Borden had tried and failed to procure a poison, that supremely feminine weapon, then she might well have turned in frustration to a readily available household implement to carry out her murderous design. The defense, however, sought to exclude the prussic acid evidence as irrelevant to the axe murders. Perhaps she did try to buy the poison, the defense conceded but there's no connection between it and Lizzie Borden's dead parents. The Bordens had not been poisoned, they had been hacked to death. Um, for its part, the prosecution argued that the attempt to buy pr- prussic acid showed intent and premeditation. Um, and although motive may not be a required element of murder, um, the prosecution also sort of needed to explain why she killed uh, as well. Um, One of the classic motivations for murder has always been money. Both sides in the Borden case, however, regarded Lizzie's substantial inheritance of over $150,000 as insufficient motive to justify a conviction. This, too, was a decision founded on cultural ideas about gender. Desire for independent wealth clearly fell outside the purview of feminine ambition. Anger at the father was also too culturally fraught to be a satisfactory explanation. Instead, Moody focused on a more acceptable motive, a longstanding hatred of and jealousy of her stepmother. Jealousy between women was something that fit 19th century expectations of female behavior. And in violation of family harmony and privacy, Lizzie Borden had repeatedly made her grievances public. So that, almost ironically, her well-known hatred of her stepmother was the only motive explored at trial. Abby married Andrew Borden about two years after his first wife's death in 1863. Andrew needed a housekeeper and mother for his children and his offer of her own establishment may have been particularly tempting to a somewhat long-in-the-tooth single woman from a family continually skirting financial distress. But it was a hard bargain. Her stepdaughter's antagonism was well known. Emma, nearly 13 at the time of her father's remarriage, always referred to Abby by her first name and never as mother. Um, In the prosecution's theory of the case, Abby's attempt to help her half-sister triggered her stepdaughter's animosity. At her request in 1887, Andrew Borden purchased Abby's sister's rented home, uh, gave it to Abby, to forestall the sisters' eviction. Although he attempted to appease his daughters by transferring property of equal value into their name, this act either created the tension in the Borden household or raised raised it to the surface. Thereafter, Bridget served two sittings of each meal because the daughters refused to eat with the parents, and neither daughter spoke to Abby except in response to a direct question. You know, they couldn't be rude. Furthermore, Lizzie pointedly began referring to Abby as Mrs. Borden, her stepmother, and frankly expressed her ill will towards Abby to anyone who asked. In March 1892, about five months before the murders, Lizzie chastised her dressmaker for referring to Abby as her mother. She said, don't say that to me, for she is a mean, good-for-nothing thing. Similarly, on the evening after the murders, she crisply informed Assistant Marshal Fleet, the officer in charge of the investigation, that Abby was her stepmother, not her mother. Abby was acutely aware of her stepdaughter's feelings, but it was apparently not until August 2nd, 1892, two days before the murder, that she considered them life-threatening. Despite the heat of the summer, the Bordens economized and ate leftover fish. That evening, they suffered the consequences. The elder Borden spent a nauseated, sleepless night, and Bridget and Lizzie experienced a milder form of the same malady. Although such incidents were common in Fall River, it it was colloquially known as the Summer Complaint. Abby did not view her distress as typical. Instead, she went to the family doctor's house the following morning and said that she had been poisoned. Abby may have... Um, learning of their fish dinner, Dr. Bowen was not alarmed and wrote it all off as simple food poisoning. The subject might have remained closed, but the household, with the exception of Lizzie, fell ill again after the evening meal of leftover mutton stew. Though Moody did not claim that Borden poisoned her family, he explained that the happenstance of food poisoning was an illness suggestive of an opportunity to a person desiring to procure the deaths of one or other of these people. That evening, Lizzie paid a call on her neighbor, Alice Russell, and confided her own fears. Despite Miss Russell's reassurances, Lizzie said she believed the milk had been poisoned and alluded to nebulous threats against her father by unnamed men. Lizzie also confessed her generalized uneasiness and sense of foreboding remarking, I feel as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw off, and it comes over me at times no matter where I am. Borden seemed, according to the prosecution, to predict her parents' untimely demise and reveal her own plan to carry out that prediction. The prosecution's showing of Borden's malign intent shored up its argument in favor of admitting the prussic acid. Out of earshot of the jury, Eli Benz, a Fall River druggist, testified that she had attempted to buy prussic acid the day before the hatchet fell. He also intended to testify that no one had ever asked him for prussic acid before that day, despite Borden's insistence that she had bought prussic acid on many occasions to clean her sealskin cape. According to the prosecution, there is no purpose of offering this testimony than that is bearing on the state of mind of the defendant prior to the homicide, the intent, the deliberation, the preparation. When the defense immediately objected, Moody continued, it is not an article in commercial use, it is an article which is not sold except upon prescription, and it is not used for the purpose of cleaning capes sealskin capes or capes of any other sort and has no adaptability to that use. To combat the defense argument that this was impermissible other acts evidence, the prosecution cited cases in which evidence that might establish guilt of an entirely separate crime was nonetheless admitted to show um, intent. Ever the master of succinct doctrinal analysis, prosecutor Moody stated the common law rule where a given intent is in question, any act near in point of time and significant in character is competent, no matter whether it tends to prove the commission of another crime or not. Massachusetts law on this point was particularly clear. But Robinson objected. First, he feigned incredulity, arguing that the Borden, that Borden was charged in the indictment with slaying or killing these two people with a sharp instrument. How then can her attempts to buy poison, an article which a person may legitimately buy, have any tendency at all to show that this defendant killed these two persons with an ax? Second, he argued that admitting the evidence would be unduly prejudicial because the prosecution was essentially bootstrapping, using Borden's (coughs) snide comment to her dressmaker months earlier to manufacture some kind of murderous intent. As for her terse correction of the police officer who referred to Abby as her mother, Robinson blithely observed, well, that was a statement of truth. Now, can that statement made by herself to the policeman, which was subsequent to the crime, or the statement made to the dressmaker antecedent to the tragedy, be raised into the force of declaration indicating any personal violence to Mrs. Borden? Robinson redoubled his efforts to elaborate the potential uses for the most deadly of poisons. He asserted people buy prussic acid to kill animals. It may be the cat. This is innocent. It's not a crime at any rate. He then fell back on the most improbable argument of all, the rationale offered by Lizzie Borden when she tried to buy the prussic acid, that she needed the prussic acid to clean her sealskin cape. Glossing over the unfortunate fact that it was early August, and no one had ever heard of such a use for prussic acid, Robinson contended that, given that innocent use, the evidence should be kept from the jury. At first, the judges allowed the prosecution to present the evidence, but insisted on testimony about the uses of prussic acid. Despite three prosecution witnesses, two pharmacists and a furrier, who each insisted that prussic acid could not be used to clean a sealskin cape, the court ultimately excluded the evidence on the grounds that the prosecution could not prove that it had no innocent use. Robinson may have been a bit at sea in the black letter law, but he was brilliant in keeping the witnesses from being qualified as experts. Yet, as an outraged Dean Wigmore later observed, a woman of ordinary knowledge is alleged to have brought prussic acid for cleaning furs, but men of technical accomplishments are not allowed to say that there is no such use known to their experience. While legal commentators expressed at most polite disapproval about the panel's exclusion of the inquest testimony, the judge's ruling, excluding the prussic acid evidence, was received with almost universal surprise by the bar. The judge's perception of the way that the precedent should be interpreted and how evidence should be characterized hinged upon a larger context which made the application of law to fact more than a reductive exercise. In his appeal to admit Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, Moody displayed a commanding knowledge of legal doctrine but appeared entirely deaf to the cultural white noise surrounding the case. By contrast, Robinson's success at depicting an atmosphere of coercion at the inquest depended upon and exploited particular notions of late 19th century femininity. (laughs) Similarly, the prussic acid evidence seemed so potentially inflammatory because poison, unlike an axe or a hatchet, fits the profile of a calculating murderess. We must not forget that in assessing their decisions, the judges confronted an unlikely defendant for a horrible crime, a woman represented as a loving daughter by the defense and a cold-hearted murderess by the prosecution. And the judges had to apply the law as they read it to a defendant who threw those fixed representations of womanhood into stark relief. The judges did not exclude the evidence because they wanted Borden acquitted or because of simple bias. Rather, as Robinson had argued of his own client at the inquest, they too were in custody beyond the possibility of any release from their cultural milieu. Yet the judges' decisions did not simply reflect their culture in declaring some of the evidence, some part of the story, if you will, off limits They created the frame through which the jury would examine the case, shaping the legal narratives the prosecution and the defense would be able to present to the jury. So we can now return to the moment of decision, to the jury poised to deliver its verdict. Despite the protracted drama of the trial, the jury reached its decision on the first ballot but sat in the jury room for an extra hour and a half for the sake of appearances. When asked for the verdict, the foreman could no longer contain his excitement, interrupting the question and declaring Lizzie Borden not guilty. As the courtroom erupted in what seemed to be a single yell, joined after a momentary delay by an answering cheer from the spectators outside, Lizzie Borden sank back into her chair as if shot, placed her face on the rail in front of her seat and sobbed, recovering the tragic heroine of the tale, turned to her sister Emma and said, now take me home. Thank you very much, and I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions.